the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. From every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob France. Oh my goodness, welcome indeed to Always Right Radio on a Monday morning, eight minutes after the hour of nine o'clock, 22nd morning of the eighth month of the year of our Lord, 2022. Thank you so much for being with us. Wow, uh, crazy weekend, crazy weather weekend yesterday. We drove back into this from Hillsdale, uh, into the big mess uh, yesterday. Uh, Lorraine County in particular got slammed with about five inches of rain. I know a lot of uh, Northeast Ohio got hit too, but crazy weekend. The daughter's back on campus for her senior year at Hillsdale, which is just simply impossible to believe. It was an impossibly busy weekend. I'm glad the weekend is over so I can take a break and do my job. I feel, <laughs> I do. I feel like it was we were running around more over the weekend than I do uh, during the actual work week. But I'm so glad to be back with you this morning. So glad to have you here. Thank you. And maybe that's why it seemed like it was such a lot of work because it was a long weekend for me. I uh, had uh, Friday Khalid Namar sitting in for me as I went and uh, did my part for charity and donated a whole bunch of uh, golf balls to the golf gods uh, out at Briarwood while also helping to donate a bunch of money to. 
uh, a very worthy cause, the uh, Fallen Patriots Children's Fund. Uh, what a wonderful children of fallen patriots, I guess is a better way to describe it. What a wonderful organization benefited by the Independence Kiwanis Association. Uh, Len Hauser from The Fish and I, along with a couple of friends, one of our uh, sales associates uh, in the... Um, uh, in the building and uh, and uh, and an engineer, we just had a great time on Friday raising money. Played some terrible golf. I did. Len was phenomenal. Len was, Len was phenomenal. I played some terrible golf, but it didn't matter. Uh, it was a charitable event, and uh, thank you, Khalid Namar, for sitting in for me and holding down the fort while I was gone. I know you do a phenomenal job. As a matter of fact, Jonathan Broadbent was had some high praise on Facebook. I noticed when I returned uh, for the uh, job that uh, Khalid did. I've always said it, and I'll say it again. I'm very blessed to have a deep bench of uh, hosts who can step in for me, the way I do for Dennis Prager and for uh, you know for Brandon Tatum and and Hugh Hewitt and and, and others. It's uh, it's a very important part of a radio show to have a very very talented group of hosts who can step in when you cannot be there. And Khalid Namar is a part of that group for me. So thank you, Khalid. I know it was uh, I know it was a phenomenal show, or else I wouldn't have chosen you to, you to do it. So as for this morning, we've got to dive back in. We've got a lot of things to get to. Three guests coming up in about a half an hour. Jim Jordan, Congressman Jim Jordan. He has been taking some heat and some criticism, really, quite frankly, some, some ridicule, for alleging that he has heard from no less than 14 whistleblowers, 14 whistleblowers about the, uh, in the FBI about the um, Mar-a-Lago raid, which is now two weeks ago, two weeks ago today. Uh, we're going to talk to him about that. What is going on? Why is the affidavit that is going to be unsealed eventually going to be heavily redacted to the point where the American people see nothing? Why are they continuing to hide from us if they have such great evidence and such justification to raid a former president's home? Why can't we see it? And it, it might not be as big of a deal as it is, if they hadn't already played this game with him 19 other times. We've got evidence in plain sight that Donald Trump did this wrong, that wrong, or the other thing wrong. And yet, here we sit, they, they have had nothing on him. Nothing whatsoever. Um, just a bunch of bungled, faux investigations, and they just continue to persecute. Well, Jim Jordan says there are 14 FBI whistleblowers he's heard from and might actually be able to anticipate more coming forward to tell the truth about what's going on there. I can't wait for that to be the case. I also can't wait for Donald Trump Jr. to release what he says um, they have from body cam footage, body cam footage of that raid. He said they have obtained some very important uh, video footage. He said it will be released, quote, at the right time. Not sure what that means, but we're all trying to get to the bottom of that. We'll talk to Jim Jordan about it coming up at 9.35, among, among other things. Excuse me. Also coming up uh, this morning at 10.10, we're going to be talking to David Bernstein. Now, there is a descriptor, I guess, if you will, of race. Um, and, and not just descriptor, classifications, I guess is a better way to say it. Classifications of race uh, that we're going to be talking about. Um why is it that everything is boiled down to black or white? It's either like black or white or Latino or Asian, as if there are not a whole bunch of different varieties of quote-unquote Asian, as if there aren't a whole bunch of different types of white, you know, different ethnic Europeans, because obviously there are. And we're going to have to talk about why it is that race classification isn't a little bit more specific if race matters at all. Now, personally, I know, I, I know how I feel about it, I think we should stop talking about race altogether. I mean, t- 
talking about and fixating on race is probably what drives racism more than anything else. We don't need to do that. It is it is not productive, I don't believe, for us to do that. But yet people do it anyway. And if they're going to then focus on race, why is it why is everybody who's white just classified as white? Yeah, you're all the same. White privilege. Doesn't matter what kind of white, doesn't matter what ethnicity. Uh, same thing with Hispanics. There are a whole lot of different Hispanic subcultures and subgroups uh, and, and, and geographic groups. But yet, race classification is used only, I think, when it can be politicized. We're going to talk about that uh, coming up at 1010. And then Kenny Shu is going to be back with us. We haven't talked to or heard from uh, Kenny Shu in just a bit. And uh, very much looking forward to a chance to talk to him uh, as well. Kenny Shu has is been just at the forefront of the coverage of the Harvard race, uh, speaking of race, we're still talking about that, about the Harvard race uh, admission scandals in which um, Asians are essentially being pushed off of campus. Why? Because there are too many of them. Too many of them. They're too successful, and uh, we can't be having successful Asians all over this campus. We need equity. We need an equal number of other types of minorities as well, the ones who aren't successful. We need some of those who are not successful because, you know, if you're not successful, um, that's, that's who we want on Harvard. It'll be good for you and it'll be good for us. No, all it is is window dressing and coloring up uh, the campus. So anyway, uh, Kenny Hsu is, uh, has been the lead insider on that Harvard case. And we're going to talk to him about that, but we're also going to talk to him about a case of, um, a case of uh, uh, students who have been... Uh, unfairly targeted for their own um let me rephrase this i'm I'm struggling to describe this the there's a bunch of california college students who are suing their university because they didn't like the fact that their anti-communist posters were taken down during freedom week so the college this california university essentially said communist posters good thumbs up anti-communist posters bad you're not being inclusive you're not allowing the 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 communists to be included here during freedom week so therefore we're going to exclude you and your posters during freedom week does that make sense i i stumbled around that a little bit trying to find the best way to describe it so i'll I'll dumb it down even further communism good anti-communism bad is what this university has said to these students. The students are filing a lawsuit against the college, which I think is a phenomenal idea. We've got to fight, and we've got to fight hard, and that's exactly what's happening. It's a community college, Clovis Community College, and we'll talk about that with Kenny Shue coming up at 1035. So Jim Jordan in a half an hour, David Bernstein at 1010, Kenny Shue at the bottom of the next hour at 1035. So the conversations I will have with you will be before, between, and after those. 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. Those are the numbers to be a part of the discussion this morning. Now, before we get into the top news story of the day, I'm going to ask you to, patriots, please rise. Face your flag if you have one. If you don't, that's all right. Just go ahead and imagine one. Put your hand on your heart and join us. If you're driving, you don't have to stand, but you can probably manage putting your hand on your heart. If you can put your hand on that breakfast sandwich that you're eating, well, you can put it down for a minute and put it on your heart and join us for our pledge. If you are a believer in communism good, anti-communism bad, uh, then uh, you are a Democrat, and you, uh, as such, you have no earthly idea what this flag stands for or represents. And I've got a lead story on that in just a moment. So you are exempted from the request to pledge your allegiance. Go ahead and take a knee next to your favorite ex-quarterback, next to your favorite former WNBA player who has signed a nine-year contract with the Russians. Uh, 
<laughs> and I do believe it's unbreakable. Uh, and uh, your favorite pink-haired ex-soccer player. They hate this country. They can kneel. As for the rest of us... I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. By the way, speaking of students, uh, and we'll talk more about that coming up in a bit, um, it, it, get, it gets even worse when you cross the pond. Do you know what they're doing in Britain now? And it's probably coming here. Students in Britain's oldest specialized drama school have been given QR codes that they can put on their phones and they can inform teachers, or excuse me, inform on teachers who commit microaggressions by scanning the QR codes put up in their classrooms. So they, oh, so I'm sorry, the codes aren't on the phones, the codes are in the classroom. And if somebody detects a microaggression from a teacher, all the student has to do is scan their little camera at the QR code in the classroom and bing, and that teacher gets reported. Holy goodness. Um, I, I didn't think wokeism could rise to that level, but it is. The only thing I can think of, by the way, before that comes to the United States is, is there a practical application for such things when CRT and SEL uh, and comprehensive sex education and drag queens and all kinds of other nonsense are brought into our classrooms. Um, maybe that's what we need. Uh, I, I don't like the idea, but if it's going to be used against, uh, or for rather, then I think it ought to be used against bad teachers as well. All right, so let's dive into uh, the lead story this morning. When we talk about, and I talk about this rel- relatively frequently, and I've even had conversations about this with my kids, uh, just kind of off the cuff. Um, you know, what, why is it that flags are associated with Republicans and conservatives and not with Democrats? You know, when you see a crowd gathering with American flags flying, usually accompanied by the Gadsden flags, don't tread on me, you automatically know, if you, even if you're off on a distance, from a distance, that's a patriotic conservative group. And it's because they believe in the flag, they believe in the Constitution, they believe in uh, you know the the principles of the founding of this country, and they are there to defend it. When you see BLM flags, when you see pride flags, when you see all kinds of things other than the stars and stripes, you know that you have a leftist crowd because they are not proud of the country. That's why they don't fly its colors. They are not proud of the uh, republic that we have been gifted. And so all of these things kind of beg the question, why are conservatives considered to be more patriotic and more America-loving and and leftists not? And I think the answer can be found in in, in our lead story today. A New York Times op-ed written by two Ivy League law professors who are calling for an end to the U.S. Constitution. I mean, nothing really clarifies quite as well as that, does it? Leftists don't like the Constitution. Leftists want to change the Constitution. Leftists don't believe in this glorious republic. Leftists believe that the Constitution is old, outdated, and antiquated, and it not only should it perhaps be changed, but maybe, just maybe, destroyed altogether. 
completely shredded and rewritten. And when you see the New York Times running something like this, and when you see that it's been written by your children's indoctrinators at Ivy League universities, professors, thought leaders, the best and brightest among us, we're told, and they're telling us the U.S. Constitution is broken and famously undemocratic, well, then I don't think you have to question things that I say when I bring these things up. When Mark Levin brings these things up on Fox, when Dennis Prager brings these things up here on on Salem, we're not making it up when we tell you that Democrats and leftists, generally speaking, and this is not, of course, universal, it's not to a man, but Democrats over, overall, and in a general sense, just do not like this country. It's why they want to tear it down, so that they can rebuild it in a model that is more appropriate to their line of thinking. A Marxist model. Literally, a Marxist model. One that will be very easily assimilated into the globalist model that they believe in. The one world government model. The equity for all model. The massive government doling out rations equally to all peoples model. The capitalist model that we have. The capitalist model in the free democratic republic that we have is simply unacceptable. And they're writing about it. And it's being published. And it's being feted. It's being celebrated. The broken and famously undemocratic U.S. Constitution stands in the way of real freedom and democracy, according to these two Ivy League law professors. They issue a call to radically alter the basic rules of the game by no longer requiring us to justify our politics by the Constitution. Goodbye, Constitution. Goodbye, Founding Fathers. Goodbye, the basic fundamental bedrock of this great civilization, the greatest nation that that mankind has ever produced. Goodbye. The bedrock shall be chipped away. The bedrock shall be shattered. We will destroy and then rebuild in something that is a little bit more amenable to us. The New York Times ran this essay entitled, The Constitution is Broken and Should Not Be Reclaimed. It was written by law professors Ryan Dorfler of Harvard and Samuel Moyne of Yale. Harvard and Yale getting together. The rivalry between the two elitist, leftist universities is kicked to the curb. That rivalry when we can come together with a combined and joined effort, in a combined and joined effort, to tear down this country. Barack Obama took some massive steps toward doing so in his eight years in office. Donald Trump got in the way. And now Joe Biden has picked it right up where it left off. And if we do not do something to stop that momentum moving forward... We are going, they are rather, are going to be successful in their efforts. I'm going to share more of this, and we're going to talk about it. There's no ambiguity here. When you hear leftists calling for the destruction of the Constitution, they can no longer claim we love this country just as much as you do. Just because we don't wear flags or carry flags doesn't mean it. Yeah, it kind of does. It kind of does. 925, this is Always Right Radio, a Monday edition. We're loaded up and ready to go on Always Right Radio AM 1420, The Answer.
All right, nine twenty-eight. Appreciate you being with us this morning. Just a few, a couple of minutes left here before the bottom of the hour, and then we turn it over to Jim Jordan, or we turn to Jim Jordan for discussion. But uh, let me give just a little bit more of of this. The pair of Ivy League law professors, uh, again, Professor Dorfler from Harvard, Professor Moyne from uh, from Yale, claim that when liberals lose in the Supreme Court, as they did in the Dobbs decision, which of course overturned Roe versus Wade, they blame justices for misreading the Constitution. Yet in reality, struggling over the Constitution has proved to be a dead end. The real need is not to reclaim the Constitution, the leftists argue, as many would have it, but instead to reclaim America from constitutionalism. The some-centuries-old text no longer applies. The essay written by the two leftist professors, and again, did I mention that these are professors that indoctrinate your children? They used to educate children, now they indoctrinate them. And your kids might not be at Harvard or Yale, thank God. But your kids are probably being taught the same type of messages by people just like these two, depending on what university they go to, what classes they're forced to take. The essay also claims that constitutions, and essential, or especially the broken ones we have now, direct us to the past, something that aids the right, which tends to stick with what it claims to be the original meaning of the past. End quote. Well, first of all, there is something to be said about the past. There is something to be said about the traditions upon which the greatest civilization in the history of mankind have been built. Those traditions are extraordinarily important. What these two geniuses, or would it be genii, what these two professors from Yale and Harvard believe is the exact opposite of the tested, tried, and true axiom that those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. They want to erase the past. They don't want to cling to it. They want to erase it and start anew. Which, of course, leads to the same problems that, were, that existed and were corrected in the past but this is modern american leftism this is what they believe it's a startling startling admission in this new york times op-ed we'll talk more about it but first we'll get a time out for news then we're going to talk to jim jordan about a host of things including whistleblowers in mar-a-lago that's up coming up rather on am 1420 the answer Waking up America from its woke slumber. Always Right Radio with Bob France on The Answer. Okay, 937, Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Thanks so much for joining us on this Monday. Let's welcome Congressman Jim Jordan, ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee, back to our program. Congressman, good morning. I hope you had a good week weekend. I, I did, Bob. Hope you did as well. Yeah, very much so. Uh, school is back in session. Uh, daughter's back up at Hillsdale for her senior year. It's unbelievable how fast wow. this time is going. I know. Wow. It's just, it's Congrats. Crazy. Congrats. That's yeah. Great. Yeah, crazy time. All right, crazy time going on in our country right now. Two weeks ago today, uh, the federal government, acting on a warrant issued by a Trump-hating judge, um, 
went ahead and raided Mar-a-Lago. We know the story by now. We know what they said they were looking for. Then, of course, we uh, got the warrant unsealed. Now we're trying to get the affidavit that led to the warrant, and that's going to be released, but it's going to be heavily redacted. Congressman, I want to ask you what you know about this, particularly as it pertains to what you described on on Fox News' uh, uh, show with uh, Trey Gowdy as 14 yep. different whistleblowers coming to yep. you with information about this uh, about this raid of Mar-a-Lago. You have been roundly mocked and criticized by the leftist media over this, well, um, which you're used to, I know, because that's what yeah, they do. <laughs> you're you're, you're yeah. an effective conservative legislator, and uh, they're going to come after you every time anyway. But they're, yeah. they're spe- specifically critical of your claim that 14 whistleblowers from the FBI had come forward to your office. I want you to respond to those critics. Well, yeah, it's, it's at least 14, and they've come to our office on a host of issues. What I said on Trey Gowdy was they've come to us on the political nature at the Justice Department. So we've had them initially come to us on the whole school boards issue, which you and I have talked about numerous times, uh, and we've been digging into sent countless letters on that. So we've had them to us about uh, multiple whistleblowers on the school board issue, multiple whistleblowers come forward on the school board issue direct relating to the threat tag designation, this EDU officials, the threat tag that, that, uh, the, that, that's put on parents who are investigated. And we know because of whistleblowers, over 20 uh, dozen uh, parents have been investigated. We've had whistleblowers come forward on the January 6th concerns they've had. Uh, and then uh, we've had more whistleblowers come forward and talk to us uh, about the pressure that agents are under to categorize and catalog cases as domestic violence extremism. So in a broad sense, they're coming forward talking about the political nature, and I anticipate more whistleblowers coming forward and talking to us about other problems they see there, and maybe even this issue that, that, uh, that happened two weeks ago where they went after President Trump. But my point was, this is how political this place has become, and we see that as it manifests itself, of course, in the biggest way when we saw the, the raid on President Trump's personal residence. So just to clarify, to make sure I understood that correctly, you're speaking in a more general sense. You've got whistleblowers coming forward about the politicization of the agency, of the FBI, yeah. and, the, and, and the encouragement to target conservative Americans as, as terrorists and so on and so forth. Not 14 specific whistleblowers about Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. No, no I, I never said that, but... but. You know what, but that, Bob, that, that's how they're painting it. Yeah, that's how they're painting it. That's oh. the reason I wanted to respond. They're saying that this, that's, that's this is so since much, that yeah, time. Yeah, that's how, that's how the left always operates. I, I, I'm talking about, you know, we think there are huge problems at the Justice Department at the highest levels, but there are all kinds of good rank-and-file uh, agents who we know that we know that there are 14 at least because we've had more than that come, come talk to our office directly about the political impact and the political nature of the Justice Department. Um and, and frankly, we're, we're going to have more come. I know it. Because, uh, and, and the same thing has happened with, with Senator Grassley. You've had agents go there. And, and, and one of the agents that, that uh, talked to him about this, Timothy Tebolt, we had other whistleblowers come to us and talk to us about that same individual. So this is how serious this problem is. And, of course, uh, we saw it in, in the biggest way, uh, the political nature of the Justice Department, when we saw what they did to President Trump over the last couple of weeks. Okay, I want to ask you a more difficult question now, Congressman Jordan, if I may. And that is, sure. what do you do? What can you do for these whistleblowers? They come to you not just for conversation. They come to you saying, this is a problem, we want action. So when your office receives a, well, you know, a tip, a complaint, a you know, piece of information from a whistleblower about some of these things going on, what do you do about it? What do you do with it? We, we, we 
begin to tell their story. And, and frankly, I think this underscores just how serious it is, the fact that they're willing to come to Senator Grassley and to our office um, at a time when we're in the minority, where we don't have subpoena power and we can't dig into it as much as we would like, tells you again, uh, just sort of underscores how serious this political problem is at the Justice Department, that they're willing to come to us while we're in the minority. Because really all we can do is begin to tell their story. We can write to the Justice Department, talk about concerns raised by this particular whistleblower, uh, and we've done that. But you can't, you just don't have the same leverage and, and, and power that you have if you're, in the, uh, if you're in the majority. So, again, I think that just underscores how serious it is that they say, in spite of the fact that the Republicans are in the minority, I'm still going to go talk to them because what's going on is so egregious, we have to do this. And that's what's beginning to happen in a, in a way I have never seen in my time in Congress. We're talking to Congressman Jim Jordan, ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee. Um, I'll come back to majority-minority in a moment, but uh, to, to clarify a little further now on the, the whistleblowers, are any of the 14 that you were talking to Trey Gowdy about uh, specific to Mar-a-Lago, specific to the, to the affidavit, to the warrant, or any of that part of it? Uh, I, I can't. The, we've had at least 14. We're, some of the more recent ones, our office is talking to them. I don't want to get into what they're discussing. But okay. we've had more than that come to our office. But the initial the thing that I talked about was in the political impact uh, that's going to the political nature of the entire Justice Department now. That is why these agents are coming forward and talking to us on a variety of issues. Um, but I, I don't want to get into what the, what the, the, the more recent ones are, are talking about. Do, do you get the sense that the rank and file does not trust the leadership of the FBI based on talking to these whistleblowers? Well... Well, I'll take the example of, of the ones who have been pressured. Of, of course, I mean, they're, they're, they're saying you got to label, they set up this domestic violence extremism office in the Justice Department, and the pressure is now to, to categorize cases uh, under, under that uh, category, when in fact they're not. They're just investigating bad guys. I mean, they're just doing their job as good agents. They say the pressure we get to, to, to categorize and catalog these cases this way and, and, of course, if you don't, there are implications for your career. And that's why they've come to say this is just not what's really going on there. But it fits in this whole, you know, the whole country is just, are terrorists. And if you voted for Trump, you're crazy. And that, that's the whole mindset and, and narrative that they're pushing. And these agents are saying that's just not the case. So, yeah, I do think these agents are coming forward and saying, look, this is not what the FBI is supposed to do. This is not what this agency is supposed to be about. But unfortunately, in uh, with the left in control of the, the Biden administration, this is what it's become. Congressman, um, you, you mentioned, you know, because I asked you, what do they expect you to do when they come to you? And you, you talk about being in the minority, not having subpoena power and so on and so forth. Let's talk about getting the majority back. You have been very, yeah. very resolute in this in the last several months that you and I have talked about things about November. And you say repeatedly, we're going to win. I think we're going to win. And many times... I've heard you say that, and I've wanted to say, why do you just say win? I think it's going to be a massive tsunami. You just say, I think we're going to win. We're going to, and, and I've, I always think you understated it. But now, in recent days, and in fact, recent weeks, 
there seems to be a shift. A lot of people, including polling services uh, and others, are saying this guaranteed red tsunami isn't guaranteed anymore. As a matter of fact, even a simple win, a simple majority in the House is not guaranteed, nor the Senate. Are you starting to hear the same things? Do you have any questions or do you have any concerns well, that we won't win? When I say we, I mean conservative-minded Americans yeah. who, who, who are voting for well, Republicans. Do you have any concerns that maybe it's not as much of a lock as it was in the last few months we've been talking? No, I, I still think we're going to win. But, but look, I, I, I always say, you know, if we win, when we win, because I mean, that's just my background in sports, Bobby. And I know you have the same background. Uh, you, you never want to, you never want to say you're going to win. You know, I just, I hate being overconfident. I don't like that. When I was in coaching, I didn't, you want to be confident. You want to campaign confidently. You want to train. You want to prepare. I mean, that's, that's just my, my background in sports. I, I hated people always want, you know, who were braggadocious and said, we're going to, you know, I think we are going to win. I, I, I feel like the country is that way. And frankly, what we saw last week in Wyoming, that's an indication of where the country is. Remember in that campaign, the Cheney, the Cheney campaign actively solicited Democrat support. There were no Democrats in that race. She was actively recruiting Democrats, and Democrats, in fact, did cross over and vote for her. But she still got, she got like 28%. So I do feel good about where things are at. But it's just my background in, in, in athletics is like you, you don't, you don't like, you don't sound like you're going to win. You just you just go out and play to win, and, and hopefully it works out the right way. No, and I get that, and I'm glad you're confident, uh, and, and and I'm glad you're not giving up on that belief. But but what do you make of the the shifting opinions now? Because I think everyone said, well, the Dems are cooked between inflation and everything else that's going on. They're cooked in November, but now here we are, you know, eighty plus days out, and and that that narrative is changing. Why do you think that is? Not yours. I get you're well, so confident, but why do others yeah, seem to be pu- pushing off of that? Because that's the left, the main. Stream press the same reason they said, oh, that Jim Jordan, he wasn't saying the truth about 14 whistleblowers. Their 14 have come talk to our, to, to our office. So it's just the left. Like, oh, they got to say, oh, Joe Biden had the greatest week ever because he passed a bill that raises people's taxes, going to increase inflation, and going to unleash 87,000 IRS agents on the American people. But that's a victory for Joe Biden. I mean, that's just how the left talks. I mean, the, the uh, you and I both know you see a headline by the mainstream press today, whatever the headline is, just assume it's a, it's a lie. Just assume it's false. So, yeah, th- this is just the left doing their thing because we're now, what, 77, 78 days before an election, and they got to start doing something because they see what you and I see, which is we went from a secure border to no border. We went from stable prices to record inflation. We went from $2 gas to $5 gas. And we went from uh, relatively safe streets to record levels of crime in every major urban area. We're on the one-year anniversary of Afghanistan where 13 Americans, one from the 4th District of Ohio, gave his life for our country because of Joe Biden's ridiculous lack of leadership. And then, of course, I haven't even got into what they're doing to your First Amendment, Second Amendment, Fourth Amendment rights. So I do think that the country understands how bad it is. But the left's got to talk about something and brag about Joe Biden in some way because he has not done one single thing right. Congressman, I'm glad you you mentioned no border. Uh, we went from secure border to no border because I have to ask you about this. We're spending five hundred thousand of our dollars, and when I say us, I mean the taxpayers. Five hundred thousand taxpayer dollars put forth by the Department of Homeland Security to build that wall, not the one on the southern border, but one specifically yeah. around the Delaware Beach home of Joseph R. Yeah. Biden. <laughs> He will not allow a wall. He said not one more foot of that wall will be constructed of Trump's wall when he took office. Yet he's yeah. building a security barrier around his home. That can't be. Yeah, it's it, it just one more example of the double standard and, and 
how the quote elite think they're so much better than us regular folks. I mean, you see that mindset all all the time. It was it's the same mindset that Peter Strzok said. You know, when he's texting Lisa Page, I can smell the Trump supporters in the Walmart. He texts her, I can smell the Trump. It's the same mindset when when uh, you know Anderson Cooper says, "Oh, Trump voters stay at the." Marriott and eat at the Olive Garden because, you know, he, he only eats at five-star restaurants and stays at the Ritz. You know, it's just this disdain they have for the rest of us. The rules don't apply to them. They only apply to us. And the country is sick of it. And that's another reason why I think that it's going to be a big win for Republicans uh, on, on November 8th. We are so sick of the arrogance and the idea that they're so much better than us, people who live here in flyover country, who actually go to work, who can't remote work and zoom it in, who actually go out and, and, and you know, in agriculture and manufacturing. I, our chief of staff always says, in Ohio, we make things, grow things, and move things. That's what we do. And the folks in D.C. Who, who can, you know, drink their fancy coffee and tell us all what to do and think they're better than us, the country's sick of that, and I think they're going to send a message on November 8th. Congressman, uh, you often tweet about, or your office does, whoever handles your Twitter for you, uh, about uh, the ongoing inflation, uh, you know, uh, yep. you know, calamity that we're all facing. It's brutal. Even though Joe Biden said we had zero percent because it went from nine point one to eight point five, it's still eight point five percent higher than a year ago. Anyway, we're all still struggling very much. Um, you know, the middle class is shrinking and becoming the impoverished class. Jennifer Granholm is the Energy Secretary of Joseph Biden. And she says, here's the answer, poor, impoverished Americans. Take out massive loans and spend tons of money on solar panels. And then your energy bills will drop. And buy electric vehicles, too, because then your your gas prices will lower yeah. as well. I, 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 who's the, How do we find these people? How does he find these people to make these asinine statements? When you're broke, spend a ton of money so that you'll be charged yeah. less money later on. And same with Buttigieg. Remember a few months ago, Buttigieg said, you don't like $4 gas. Go buy an electric vehicle. Well, easy for you to say, dude. I mean, like, th- this is how out of touch they are. And, and frankly, sometimes I, I point this out, like, you know, the, the old line, it never hurts to have smart people in charge. When Grand Home talks, you're like, where, what? What are you talking about? What, give someone who, you know, can, can actually put some sentences together and, and make a point that actually is, makes some sense. So, like, this is the problem with this entire administration. Buttigieg saying the goofy things he's saying. Grant Holmes saying the things he's saying. Tony Blinken, who goes up to Anchorage, Alaska a year ago, meets with his Chinese counterpart and gets dressed down by his counterpart from China. There is no way, we've talked about this, there's no way that happens to Mike Pompeo in a Trump administration. And if the guy tried that against Pompeo, Pompeo would have given it back to him. Or do you stood up and flip the table over and say, you don't talk to the United States that way. So, But this is the problem with these guys. They got A- bad left-wing policies, and B, I don't think some of them are that, that darn smart, so uh, at least as evidenced by what they what they communicate to the Americans. Congressman Jim Jordan, ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee with his regular Monday visit. A lot of stuff, very important stuff going on right now in Washington. Congressman, thank you for the time. We appreciate it, and we'll catch up again soon. You bet, Bob. Take care. Thank you. All right, it's 9.53. That's Jim Jordan on AM 1420, The Answer. We are still loaded up. We've got a David Bernstein, author David Bernstein, coming up at 10.10 to talk about racial classifications. Kenny Shu uh, is going to join us at uh, 10.35 this morning to talk about American universities that believe communism good, anti-communism bad. Yeah, it's real. All of that coming up and your calls on Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer.
You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Welcome to Always Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420. The answer. Hour number two underway now, eight minutes past 10 o'clock. It is Monday, the 22nd morning of the eighth month of the year of our Lord, 2022. Appreciate you being with us. Thanks again to Khalid Namar for sitting in for me on Friday. I had that three-day weekend. It was a busy one, back to college weekend. Uh, so uh, we're loaded up here. I have just uh, tons of information and tons of uh, energy uh, that I've got to expend right now. Uh, there, there's just so much going on. I really hate missing a single show, really, much less one going into a weekend in which a whole lot of new news has broken. Uh, I want to dive into race now, uh, not in the normal way. <clears throat> we will talk about critical race theory again in just a bit. Uh, but I want to talk about racial classification. There's a book out, a new book called Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. Why is this country so fascinated, so uh, locked in on classifying everyone by their skin color or their place of origin? And if they are going to do that, why is it so generalized? I mean, how is a Chinese person and a Korean person and a Japanese person and a Vietnamese person, Asian, just Asian, yeah, you're just all Asian, why does white get just, yeah, it doesn't matter if you have, uh, you know, what, what blood you have in you, if you come from Eastern Europe, you've come from Central Europe, Western Europe, you're just white. Why is it that we are so fixated on racial, racial classification? Is there a time coming soon in which maybe, just maybe we, um, we actually separate race from state? That's the question asked in the new book, Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America, by David Bernstein. David Bernstein is a professor at George Mason University. He actually holds the university professorship chair at the Antonin Scalia School of Law. He is a Yale Law School graduate, where he was a senior editor of the Yale Law Journal and the John Olin Fellow in Law, Economics, and Public Policy. He joins us now at AM 1420, The Answer, to talk about this racial classification. Good morning, Professor. How are you? I'm great, thanks. Good to have you with us. So this is uh, such an interesting question, and uh, and and I love the title uh, because it just harkens to any form we ever fill out, right? Any application for a job, any application for a loan, any application for a uh, you know for a, uh, a, a place to live, all of these kinds of things, you have to identify yourself by race. Uh, does it, do other countries do this, Professor, or are we unique in our in our need to declare what everybody's ethnicity and race is? You know, that varies, uh, but there there are some countries like France that just absolutely prohibit any uh, classification by the government by ethnicity or race, uh, and there's also a sort of a social taboo against it. And there are other countries like Brazil that uh, have some level of racial classification, although, of course, because our classifications are arbitrary, they don't match. So Brazil, I forget exactly how many, has like 83 different uh, classifications, whereas we have a lot fewer. Uh, and, um, you know, but we are on the sort of far edge of countries that classify much more routinely uh, than any, I think probably anywhere else in the world. Well, I'm, I'm kind of curious uh, of the countries that don't, like France, who, who, in fact, you say it's taboo to identify people by their by their racial classification or their origin or or ethnicity. What what is their reason for that? 
Well, I think there are uh, two primary reasons, at least, you know, specific to France, at least. One of which is the French traditional ideology that one citizenship trumps everything else. And they had a history of conflict between uh, the church and um, the secularists and uh, other and other conflicts, and that you know the philosophy of the French Revolution, liberté, égalité, fraternité, that we're all just Frenchmen, and that we shouldn't draw other distinctions, and that any kind of ethnic or religious identity you have should be private, not public. The second thing in France is that uh, they used to collect statistics uh, by religion, regardless, and. Um, one of the dangers of collecting statistics like that is that they can obviously be misused. And when the Nazis took over France, instead of burning or hiding the statistics about who is Jewish, they turned them over to the Nazis. So to prevent such a thing from happening again, they just don't keep those statistics anymore. Wow. That's interesting. That That's an answer I did not expect. Because I was going to say, I, I, I love the idea, to be honest with you. We're, we're all Frenchmen. Because, you know, hyphenated America has been a discussion in this country for the last couple of decades, maybe maybe more, maybe the last few decades. You know, or do we have to be African-American, Asian-American, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Why are we not all just classified as Americans? Do you find that the racial classification of this country holds us back? Or do you find that, that there is a need for it? Uh, I think that it is holding us back to some extent towards what I would like to see in the future, which would be sort of uh, a multi-ethnic American identity, right? I mean, unfortunately, if you go back, you know, 100 years or so, if you have asked the average person what is an American, they would have thought a white person, maybe even a blonde white person. You can look at old Coca-Cola ads. They look like there's something I really have Nazi Germany uh, with blonde hair and blue-eyed people. Uh, but we've gone beyond that. I think most people, you know, almost everyone, accepts that we are a multi-ethnic country and that American identity is not tied to race or ethnicity. Uh, and, you know, you can see that in the fact that almost no one opposes interracial marriage now. It's very common to oppose it uh, even, you know, 30 years ago, um, that uh, there's more and more intermarriage, assimilation, people having friend groups across across racial lines. So that's the good news. The bad news is that we, on the other hand, have this, trend where the government forces everyone into these boxes and really creates divisions and so forth where there wouldn't have been. Like, I, you know, I, you hear, especially at elite universities, people talking about, well, I go to the Asian American club or I live in the Latino house. Asian American and Latino or Hispanic identity was really completely invented by the government in the 70s. Like you said, I mean, Asian includes everyone from India to the Philippines have nothing in common. They don't look alike, they don't have the same religion, they don't have the same culture, but the government forces them into these classifications. And once you force people into these identities, inevitably interest groups and identities form around them and result in division, right? Because if you're going to the government saying we want stuff because we're Hispanic or black or American Indian or anything else, that's a zero-sum game and it creates conflict. There's only so much government resources to go around, so if you're giving stuff to people because they're black, or Latino, but you're not giving it to them if they're white, or in some cases if they're Asian, like in universities. That just creates division and conflict. We are talking with Professor David Bernstein. He's the author of a very fascinating book uh, about race in America and racial classification. It's called Classified, the Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. You know, if they are going to go to the trouble to identify everyone by their 
uh, by their origin or by their color or by their look or whatever, which is bizarre, as we just pointed out. Um, you know, when you talk about Asians, they don't look all look the same. They don't all act the same. Their cultures are all very different. Same thing when you say African American. I mean, what does that mean? Because I have to believe there are some differences between somebody who is Rwandan, uh, Somalian, uh, Sudanese, or whatever. As a matter of fact, you know. Kamala Harris gets credit for being the first African-American vice president uh, in history, uh, or a female vice president. She has no roots in Africa at all, to my understanding. She's half Jamaican and half Indian, by, by, by my understanding. Yeah, she's, um, you know, I think her mom is Indian. Her father was a uh, multi- biracial Jamaican, so he has both white and black ancestry. Now, she identifies as black, and I don't think anyone is going to tell someone in this country, maybe, maybe you know, that in the sense with just from France, if you you can identify however you like privately, the question is whether the government must classify you that way. And really what you want to do is ask yourself, well, what are these classifications being used for? They were originally promulgated back in the seventies to help enforce civil rights laws. Just to have, you know, uh, consistency among different government agencies and how they're measuring people. They can see, well, are people discriminating in voting or housing or whatever? But they've really um, metastasized well beyond that. Uh, the rules originally said they're not supposed to be used for eligibility for programs, but they quickly became affirmative action categories. And one of the things that was really most shocking to me in researching my book is I discovered that uh, the government is making people use these classifications in biomedical research, even though there is no scientific basis for you know putting everyone from Asia together or everyone from uh, from who's Hispanic or white together, or for that matter, Af- you know, Africa has a lot of genetic diversity too. So um, the government's using these. Comp- and I'm not saying that genetics doesn't have uh, a role to play in medicine, but race and genetics are not coextensive. And in fact, using race in medical research has retarded the progress we we're making towards having genetic-based medicine. So it's actually costing people's lives. That's fascinating as well. I had not uh, th- considered the, the medical aspect of that. We're talking with Professor uh, David uh, Bernstein, uh, author of Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America. So when we talk about the idea, or you talk about the idea of replacing uh, racial classification with the separation of race and state, uh, is there any movement for that at all? I mean, I, I feel like it's just the opposite. We are getting so much more polarized. Uh, everybody has to be identified by something and then separated as such. Segregation used to be a terrible thing that we tried uh, very hard, and a lot of people fought very hard and suffered a great deal to get rid of. But now it is happening on a on a voluntary basis with you know dorms and graduation ceremonies and other things being segregated. I, I feel like we're not moving toward the separation of race and state, we are more embracing it now than ever. Yeah, I mean, I think if you ask the public, public opinion, and public opinion is consistently against uh, racial preferences or otherwise designated people by race, I think there's a lot of sympathy for the fact that uh, we should try to remediate the history of uh, racism in the United States without explicitly taking into account race, which you, which is certainly possible to do. You can look at people who are concentrated in zip codes where they have bad schools and so forth. But I think the problem is that our elite, the elite institutions uh, in the United States, our universities and so forth, are really committed to this stuff uh, for a variety of ideological and other reasons. The government's committed. It's the politicians like it because dividing people up a lot, you know, divide and conquer and so forth allows them to appeal to specific interest groups. Uh, but, you know, I think that um, there's a lot of sentiment. I mean, I, you know, there's a lot of 
both resentment and puzzlement. And people don't even really know what these classifications are. They don't really know. I mean, most people think it's all self-identification. They don't realize that the government has actually promulgated official rules with official definitions. So I meet a lot of people who say, well, people from Spain aren't Hispanic. It's only really meant for dark-skinned Latinos who might face discrimination. No, people from Spain are Hispanic. Well, people from uh, Arabs are not white. Well, Arabs are indeed classified as white. I mean, it's, it's all because it's all just kind of arbitrary the government came up with. And you have to understand, the government came up with these classifications at a time when almost 90% of the public uh, was white, and a, uh, a significant minority, around 12%, were black. There were very few Asians. Hispanics at the time were considered to be white. So no one really paid that much attention uh, to all these other um, groups and their subcategories. And all of a sudden, we had this massive immigration over the last 40 years, from 50 years, from Latin America and Asia. And now we're stuck sort of with these um, arbitrary rules, which again puts someone from Pakistan in the same classification as someone from Malaysia, which makes no sense at all. That's that's exactly correct. You know, uh, Professor, you, you mentioned affirmative action in your previous response. I want to ask a little bit more about that. <clears throat> I know you're a Yale alum, uh, but, uh, you know, of course, everyone is following the Harvard uh, uh, admissions scandals and the um, essentially the blackballing of overqualified, not just qualified, but overqualified Asian students from Harvard uh, in favor of African-American students who are much lower qualified in terms of scores and in terms of aptitude and so forth. Uh, but they say that it's more important to, you know, to make the campus diverse, that the full college experience would not be achieved if it's overwhelmingly Asian and white. And so they're giving away spots in freshman classes to, uh, to people who are less qualified just to make it more diverse. That is the ultimate racial classification of America. It's discriminatory against high achieving students who want to go to Harvard and other schools that are doing this as well. How do you view that? Well, I think, you know, I, what I really try to emphasize at the end of classified is that if you're going to make a case for using racial classification, you have to say, well, what is the goal and are we actually achieving that? So there, besides the discriminatory aspect that you just mentioned of uh, what Harvard's doing, there's also the bizarreness of, again, considering Asians to be one category. Because really, if you look at the statistics, it's not that Asians as such are all succeeding so remarkably uh, in their educational uh, endeavors. It's really uh, students from India, who's with ancestry in India and China, and to a lesser extent Korea, but if you look at the Vietnamese, the Cambodians, the Filipinos, uh, a lot of other groups, they're just, you know, average or so, or maybe below average in educational achievements. You have this weird situation where Harvard may say, hey, um, we're going to take in the 101st uh, Mexican-American because that adds to our Hispanic uh, group. Uh, that makes us more diverse, but we won't take the first Hmong refugee from Minnesota. So it's not really, you know, they, officially they're saying it's more diverse to have you know, 101 uh, Mexican-Americans than to have your first Hmong. That doesn't really make any sense. Now, even with the African-American classification, it turns out that a very over half of the students who are being admitted to Harvard based on affirmative action are um, recent uh, African or Caribbean immigrants or their children, uh, and another large percentage have at least one white parent. So the group that we really thought was supposed to be benefiting from this, people whose ancestors suffered from slavery and Jim Crow and may have been stuck you know, culturally and economically in uh, bad neighborhoods where there's not a lot of uh, motivation or incentive to uh, go to higher education, you want to encourage them, those people are really getting very, very few of the slots. So we have this weird, weird dance where Harvard could pretend 
to be advocating for social justice and diversity and all that, but it's really just using these arbitrary classifications that don't make any sense. Um, last question for you, Professor, and this is a fascinating conversation, uh, not even close to as fascinating as the book itself is, and I encourage everyone to get this. It's available now. It's Classified, The Untold Story of Racial Classification in America by David E. Bernstein. Look that up. In fact, I have a link to the Amazon page right now on my webpage, which is alwaysright.us, so check that out at alwaysright.us. One more thought on um, affirmative action and, and, and really on... Uh, privilege. You know, the, the only privilege that is allowed to be acknowledged in America today is white privilege. If you're white, you have privilege. And yet, there are so many people who are begging to classify themselves as minorities, particularly as BIPOC, as they say, um, because of the, uh, the the privilege that comes along with it. I think we all remember Rachel Dolezal is maybe the first, you know, I, I'm white, but I identify. She didn't even want to say she's white. She really tried to convince everybody she was black, and she took advantage of that. Elizabeth Warren wanted everybody to think she was truly Native American and, in fact, may have advanced her career her education and her career based on that. Um, there, there, there are advantages. There are privileges. Um, there are white kids who apply for scholarships who cannot get them because they're white. These are for black or, or indigenous or, or, or whatever only. So if, if we're going to have racial classification in America, um, how can we do it in such a discriminatory fashion where people really are tr- in fact I'll one more one more uh, example of this and then you can respond professor um I don't know any biracial person publicly who identifies themselves as white if you're biracial you identify your racial minority status if you're biracial you you identify as black I don't know anybody who is a white parent and a black parent who says I'm a white person they say I'm either biracial or I'm black so there's got to be a reason for that if white privilege is is as pervasive as we are told that it is yeah well you know the real sweet spot uh, in a sense in America today are what we might call uh, uh, I use the term in the book identity entrepreneurs people who in practice suffer none of whatever social disadvantages there might be to being a member of a minority group because they live their lives, basically other people perceive them as white, but then when they apply to college or for a job or whatnot, they claim minority status, either based on fraud or uh, maybe just because they had a Mexican great-grandfather or in Elizabeth Warren's case because she had family stories that her high cheekbones were from uh, uh, Cherokee ancestry or whatever. So that is, you know, those are the people I think stir up the most resentment, uh, uh, and understandably, but also, you know, I think there are obviously some disadvantages of being, uh, you know, you, are, you do, you can be a subject of racism if you're black in the United States, but if you look, but if you look like you're Caucasian and then people perceive you that way, you live your life that way, but you can also check off that you get the legal advantages of affirmative action, then you're really doing well. Yeah, that that's 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 well said, uh, Professor David Bernstein. The book is classified: the untold story of racial classification in America. A fabulous read. Make sure you check it out. I've got it linked on uh, alwayswrite.us. You can go straight to Amazon and look for it there as well. Professor, thanks so much for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. Best of luck with the book, sir. Thanks. Me too. Thank you. All right, there's David Bernstein. We'll take a time out now. We're up at the bottom of the hour news. We're going to stay. It's kind of funny that I was talking about the Harvard discrimination case uh, in admissions with uh, David Bernstein because that's the wheelhouse for our next guest, which is Kenny Hsu. We have talked to Kenny on a number of occasions about that, but we're going to talk about a different subject with him this time. Communism. What? Yeah, communism. 
Communism and its Promotion on American College Campuses. That story is coming up. Always Right Radio, AM 1420, The Answer. and the pursuit of happiness. Always Right Radio with Bob France of The Answer. 1039 now, we do continue. Thanks again to David Bernstein. Uh, terrific, terrific conversation about racial classification in America. It's, uh, it's, I think that's a must-read right there. We talked a little bit about meritocracy, uh, David and I did. We talked about, uh, obviously, racial demographics, and that tie, both of those topics tie right into our next guest. It wasn't planned this way, but it just kind of worked out that way. Kenny Shu is an author and a journalist, and he is the president of Color Us United. He's also been the lead uh, source, I guess, for information on the Harvard discrimination case. Um, and we have talked to him about this a number, number of times. We've talked about his book, An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy. Again, president of Color Us United. Joining us to talk about something a little bit different today, but I think we'll work some of that in as well. Kenny Shute, thanks for joining us once again here in Cleveland. How are you, sir? I'm great. Thanks for having me again. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I always enjoy uh, not only talking with you, but I hear you and see you in other places on television, and uh, it's, uh, it's, I always learn a lot whenever I listen to you. Um, before we get into the subject of uh, the California school that we are, uh, uh, we're supposed to be talking about here and the anti-communist posters that were, uh, that were denied uh, due to, uh, due to uh, Freedom Week, <laughs> which is ironic enough, I just, are you familiar with David Bernstein, professor from Yale, in his book um, uh, about uh, racial classification? Um, you know, I've heard of his name, okay. but I have not been formally connected. I'll give you, him. yeah, I'll give you the thumbnail sketch here because I want to get your thoughts on it because he covers a lot of ground that that you talk about uh, a lot in your book and in and in, uh, in in some of the articles that you've written as well. His book is called "Classified: The Untold Story of Racial Racial Classification in America," and about how. Quite frankly, it's time for the United States to uh, to declassify, if you will, when it comes to race, to actually uh, kind of embrace the separation of of race and state, because classification of races um, is is unfair. Uh, you know, it is done ostensibly, according to a lot of people, to try to achieve equity and make sure that everybody of every different uh, ethnicity or racial classification has the same opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality is. Um, uh, it's unfair to to everyone, particularly when you say Asian. Asian can mean every, anything from Pakistani to Philippines to China to Korea to Vietnam and so on and so forth. But everybody just gets lumped in as Asians. It's not fair to classify people of of any uh, different race or similar ethnicity or region of the world in such a way. So we talked a little bit about um, meritocracy, something you write and talk about a lot as well, and about how. You know, it, it, it's unfortunate that discrimination happens in the name of racial classification. Some people are not given the same opportunities as others because they don't meet that racial classification. That's one of the things that he writes about. So I just thought I'd get your thoughts on that about whether or not, you know, maybe eliminating racial classifications, not forcing people to check, am I, you know, Asian or Pacific Islander, am I Caucasian, am I black slash African American and so forth on applications, you know, loan applications, job applications, and so on and so forth. Maybe we'd be better advanced as an American society if we got rid of those altogether. What are your thoughts? Yeah, maybe maybe we would. Um, 
I've always been in support of lowering the of lowering the prevalence of race in our society as much as possible. I think eliminating the racial classification standard on the U.S. Census, I think, is the first step that we can do this. Um, but we have to be realistic. Look, the U.S. government is not going to eliminate the racial classification standard anytime soon. The reason why is because the left academia and media is so bent on using the racial classification standard as a proxy for all sorts of things. Um, for example, the racial oppression narrative. If we get rid of racial uh, classification, then that means the left will not have will not be able to use the data and exploit data in service of a racial oppression narrative. So they're going to fight extremely hard, um, usually making arguments as to why America is still a racist country, for why we should still have racial classification. Um, so I see that as unfortunately not being a realistic opportunity right now, um, but I do hope to eventually create a society, um, and my group, Colorist United, is in charge of this. But I do hope to eventually create a society where racial classification becomes less and less of a factor in our country. One more follow-up to that, Kenny Shu, uh, and again, this is something you've discussed many times, so I apologize if it's redundant, the question, but why so many people are so quick to identify themselves as a racial minority if white privilege is so pervasive in this country? And, and I, as I discussed with David Bernstein, whether it's Elizabeth Warren proclaiming she's, uh, you know, Cherokee uh, and she's not, or you know, Rachel Dolezal, who's white, pretending to be she's uh, to, pretending to be an African American, or people embracing whatever they can to say, "Look at me, I'm a minority." If if white privilege exists as much as we are told that it does, wouldn't people want to? Wouldn't it be the other way around? Wouldn't people who are minorities say, "No, I'm white. Really, I swear I'm white. Hook me up." Yeah, it's really funny because when we talk about Asian Americans, and I often do with my new book, An Inconvenient Minority, which talks about Asian Americans and how they inconvenience the less critical race theory narrative in our country. Um, the, the fact is Asian Americans right now are not trying to identify as white. They're trying to, a lot of woke Asian Americans right now are trying to express solidarity with the black community and um, express solidarity as a person of color and fight for diversity. These are not things that a, that, that a person who understands the system to be a white privileged system would say, right? Um, there, the reality is we don't have the, – the privilege in our country actually comes from identifying a certain victimhood category. In fact, one study, which I'm not sure is true, uh, I want to clarify, but as, many, as much as one-third of white applicants identify themselves as Latino in college application – surveys. Um, now, I still have to look at that, uh, that data set to see if that's really true. But the point is, people aren't, aren't, aren't uh, crawling to identify as white these days in this country. They're really crawling to identify themselves as some sort of victim category because they know they're going to get artificial preference because of that identification. Yeah, that is exactly right. That's very well said. And um, we're talking with Kenny Shu once again, and uh, Kenny is the author of An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on uh, Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy, president of Color Us United. I have Color Us United, and I think even the book link, both on my webpage right now at alwayswrite.us, alwayswrite.us, so make sure you check out Kenny's work on both of those things. Let's let's pivot to this uh, topic that we reached out to you on today. 
uh, a small community college. Well, I assume it's small because it's a community college. But a community college in California uh, is the subject of a federal lawsuit filed by students who say they were denied the opportunity to display posters that opposed communism. And apparently, communist posters are welcome at the university, or at the college, rather. Uh, but anti-communist flyers had to go. Uh, the goal of the lawsuit, they say, is to ensure that everyone has the right to free expression. Uh, Young, American fo- uh, uh, Young Americans Foundation has uh, uh, published a statement uh, uh, on this, uh, claiming, quote, YAF will not sit idly by as college administrators continue to stomp on the First Amendment rights of conservative students in the name of diversity and inclusion. So there are those words again, Kenny. What are your thoughts on a university saying, hey, we welcome all kinds of great free independent thought except for that with which we disagree? Yeah, diversity and inclusion sounds really inclusive, doesn't it? Sure. Um, the uh, the whole the whole this is have you, if, I don't know if any of the people who are listening here, and I'm sure many have, have read Herbert Marcuse's Repressive Tolerance, uh, but it's an essay he wrote in 1965. Herbert Marcuse is a communist Frankfurt School thinker, one of the founders of critical theory in our country, and basically he argues for the suppression of speech in which that he finds reprehensible, which is, of course, anti-communist speech. Um, He views this as necessary for engendering the communist revolution because, you know, this this idea of tolerating all viewpoints uh, is just going to create and propagandize the Western hegemonic narrative of capitalism. Therefore, we need to take away the viewpoints propagating this kind of thing. And a lot of this protest against free speech comes from Marcuse's work. Um, And this Young America's Foundation protest for Freedom Week falls directly in line. These students are simply just exercising their right to speak about the values in the country that they love and they care about. And yet all of these leftists are shouting them down, while all of these leftists are demanding platforms to be able to speak their philosophy. If you're going to have a free speech culture in our country you have to do it for both parties but the left only wants free speech for them not for views that they disagree with and you know when you say both parties kenny um i I feel like that's that's just too narrow um because we're really into ideologies now uh not just party talking points or partisan talking points i mean i feel like at most college universities today, and I don't care if it's Harvard or if it's this, what is it, Cozy Community College or whatever it is in, in California, I feel like a student standing up and proclaiming and pounding the desk in support of Marxism and literally teaching and quoting uh, you know, from the Communist Manifesto, I, I feel like that person would be celebrated and not just tolerated, but celebrated for you know being... Uh, willing to to you know to express their strong views on this, and that's what the First Amendment is all about. But if somebody stood up next to him and tried to refute every one of those points, that person would be accused of intolerance, and that person would be shouted down and told to sit down and stop trying to uh, you know to marginalize this other person. Um, in, here in the United States of America, where we know and we have studied and we have tried to teach how many millions of people have died under the boot of communism and Marxism, that they were just so completely backwards in terms of what we tolerate and what we celebrate. Right. And it just goes back to this Marcuse essay, repressive tolerance. Yeah. The idea that tolerating all viewpoints is not what we should do in this country. 
In fact, we should be propping up communist viewpoints and silencing those who disagree. That is the progressive viewpoint these days. This is why they come up with this term hate speech, right? Because supposedly the speech that is free, that is made by people, but does not fit in their ideology, can now be classified as hate speech. And hate speech is not protected by the First Amendment, according to the left, which is wrong. It's not true. Hate speech is protected by the First Amendment. I can tell you, when I was in college at Davidson College, and I said things like, hey, what about, um, how do you guys feel about uh, redistributing the top 10% of GPAs to the bottom 10%? You know, <laughs> uh, give, just, given, just given that, and many people disagreed, some people called what I said hate speech. <laughs> and they were able to use this justification to attempt to silence me. It, it's, it's just, this is the culture on campus. You disagree with the left, they call you hate speech, they try to, 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 to take out your free speech away from you. Well, that's the that's the very nature of it. I mean, what a great example that you just gave too. You know, if they don't like it, it's called hate speech, and 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 that's why they say hate speech is not protected by the First Amendment. You must be silenced. That's precisely why the First Amendment exists. The First Amendment doesn't mm-hmm. exist to protect speech with which everyone agrees. If it did, if you know, if that was the case, we wouldn't even need it. Everyone would always say flowery, wonderful things that everybody agreed upon. It's to protect things that people don't want to hear, don't like to hear, don't agree with, or find offensive. That's precisely why we have a First Amendment, and it's remarkable, to, uh, remarkable to me that more people don't understand that, particularly in academia. And and I guess I should say remarkable kind of ironically because I think they do, but they're just their their ideology drives them, not their not their understanding and not their common sense. Kenny Shu oh, and and they're yeah, go ahead, sir. And they're scared. And they're scared because the DEI industry is going after them as well. That's very true as well. Uh, check out Kenny Shu's book. It's an inconvenient minority: the attack on Asian American excellence. And the fight for meritocracy. He and also check out the webpage, Color Us United. Color Us United. Kenny is the president of that organization, which is attempting to essentially uh, erase, uh, you know, the the um, uh, the uh, the classifications that we were talking about with David Bernstein. Uh, Kenny believes what I believe that a colorblind society is the best society, one which is fair and of opportunity for everyone. Kenny, thanks so much for the work you do. We appreciate it, and hopefully, we'll talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Kenny Shu uh, on AM 1420, The Answer. There you go. We just went back to back to back. It's like back to back to back home runs in a baseball game. That's pretty exciting, actually. Our three, four, and five hitters all just jacked that out of the park. We had Jordan and Bernstein and Shu. Now, the rest of the lineup. That would be you. 216-901-0945. Guest free the rest of the way. So for the next hour, I want to hear from you. 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. Always write radio on AM 1420. The answer. All right, my friends, it's 1057, so we've got a full hour, or roughly a full hour, of uh, Always Right Radio still to go, and I welcome you at 216-901-0945. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what I started the show with. We're kind of, kind of, going to kind of finish the circle here and talk about why it is that the American left just flat out, abjectly, and unapologetically hates the United States. 
They hate the U.S. as it exists today. They hate the United States as it was built, as it was founded. The bedrock of this country is its Constitution. And the Constitution, they say, just simply needs to go. And it's funny how they attack. They used to just attack the Supreme Court when they got Supreme Court decisions they didn't like. They attacked the Supreme Court and said they misread the Constitution. Now, after Dobbs overturned Roe versus Wade, now they're saying it's not even just the Supreme Court anymore. The whole Constitution needs to go. There's an op-ed, if you didn't hear this in the beginning of the program, there's an op-ed in the New York Times. They ran it prominently. It was written by two professors, Ivy League professors, one from Harvard, one from Yale. And together they are calling for an end to the Constitution. They essentially want to scrap this country and start over again. I'll share a little bit of that with you coming up after the top of the hour news, but mostly I want to listen to you. Is this indicative of leftists as you know them? Is this just what leftism preaches? The United States is evil and must be destroyed and rebuilt in an image with with, with which they agree. Because that seems to be the case, and I want to hear from you. 216-901-0945. Right back after news. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. This is Always Right Radio with Bob Franz on AM 1420, The Answer. Always Right Radio continues in hour number three now at nine minutes past 11 o'clock. Thanks for being with us. We have three great interviews already in the program. If you missed them, you uh, you missed out. Uh, great, great, great conversations with Jim Jordan. Talk to us about uh, whistleblowers coming to him, asking what can you do because our agencies are out of control, talking about FBI whistleblowers. Uh, targeting and politicizing uh, uh, and, and targeting conservative Americans and more. It was a great conversation. You need to hear the whole thing. If you missed it, it'll be up on the podcast page. It'll be also on Always Right Radio uh, a little bit later on this afternoon, early afternoon. We talked to uh, David uh, Bernstein, an author and a professor, about uh, racial classifications in America. Very, very informative. And so was the conversation I just had with Kenny Shu, as we talked about how communism is promoted and accepted, in fact, uh, in a lot of American universities, whereas anti-communist statements must be quashed. They must be silenced. All in the interest of what? Diversity of thought, I guess. 
<laughs> Except you're not allowed to have a thought of your own. You have to go along with what uh, the university indoctrinators say. So thanks for being with us. It's the 22nd morning of the 8th month of the year of our Lord, 2022. I'll start this same hour the way, or start, start this hour rather, the same way I started the last couple, and that is to thank Khalid Namar for sitting in for me on Friday as I did a little charity golf outing. Uh, don't ask me how I golfed. I don't like to talk about it. It was terrible, but, uh, <laughs> we had a great time and we raised money for, uh, the Kiwanis Club and their support of the Children of Fallen Patriots, which is, uh, such an extraordinarily important organization. So thanks to Khalid for sitting in and doing his thing. I love having him in for us. And uh, I appreciate you being with me now. 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. Either one of those numbers will get you here. I want to share uh, a little bit more of an article that I started the program with. If you weren't with us at 9 o'clock, well, then this is this is going to catch up a little bit. And actually, before I get to that part of it, this this is kind of a, a good scene setter, if, I, if you will. Um, you know as well as I do, because I've given you these polls before about the number of people um, who feel like the United States is headed in the right direction. Are they on track? That the United, they, they like the track that the United States is on, rather, is a better way of saying that. Um, and how that number continues to shrink. Joe Biden's popularity continues to shrink. American satisfaction with the direction of the country continues to shrink. And yesterday, on Meet the Press, Chuck Todd uh, acknowledged as much. Their own poll, an NBC, NBC News poll, finds that Americans are angry, according to Chuck Todd, with a graphic showing 74% of those polls say the country's on the wrong track. Todd said we're less than three months before the midterms, and our brand-new NBC News poll paints a pretty bleak picture. Americans are angry and disappointed and worried about the future of the country, and why wouldn't they be? It's been under Democrat leadership for the last 18 months. It's been under full Democrat control in the White House, in the, in the House, and in the, uh, and in the Senate. The only thing that has been marginally, um, and this, of course, is also divisive. I was going to say marginally uh, satisfactory here would be the performance of the Supreme Court, but that, of course, depends on your opinion as far as uh, when it comes to the Dobbs case and some other very important cases they decided, but particularly the one that overturned Roe versus Wade. So 74% of Americans say the country is on the wrong track, and that number is, is rather astounding. And maybe that's why so many leftists believe that the answer is to scrap it and start over. This brings me to the story I talked about in the 9 o'clock hour, so I hope you'll bear with me a little bit while I give you the background. Two Ivy League professors, one from Harvard, one from Yale, Professor Ryan Dorfler from Harvard, Samuel Moyne from Yale, put a piece in the New York Times, which ran it, that said, it's time to end the United States Constitution. Throw out the broken Constitution and reclaim America. Which is interesting because... There is no America without the United States Constitution. There just isn't. What America is and what America has been, which is the greatest force for good in the history of hum- human civilization, is due in large part, if, all, if not exclusively, due to that glorious document that was written by our country's founders. But these Ivy League law professors, the same kind of professors who will be indoctrinating students for years and years to come, not just in the Ivies, but across this country, this country is so flawed, so bad, so, so outdated, that it needs to be scrapped and rebuilt. In a Friday New York Times essay entitled, The Constitution is Broken and Should Not Be Reclaimed, 
by these professors, they argue that, quote, the real need is to not reclaim the Constitution, as many would have it, but instead reclaim America from constitutionalism. And they attack, quote, some centuries-old text. They claim that constitutions, and especially the broken one we have now, that's a quote, direct us to the past, something that aids the right, which tends to stick with what it claims to be the original meaning of the past. And I'll, and I'll stop there, and I'll say what I said in the uh, first hour. Um, you're damned right we claim the past. And you're doggone right it aids the right. Because what does the right stand for? What does the American conservative, political, ideological right stand for? It stands for law and order. It stands for constitutional principles of life, liberty, and the freedom to pursue happiness. It stands for uh, all Americans being created equal. We claim the past, including and especially the Constitution that founded this country, because that is what has brought the greatest amount of good to human civilization ever. Ever. And we are proud of that. Now, are we proud of every element of our history? Well, of course not. We're not proud of slavery. That's why those on the right fought so hard to abolish it. It's why they created a party called the Republican Party, whose whose chief goal and aim was to end, to abolish the horrible institution of slavery in the United States. So, so is the United States perfect in its history? No, because we're human beings. We're flawed. All of us. Countries are flawed. All of them. But what makes the United States so very, very unique is that Constitution and the drive and the will by the people who believe in it to right our wrongs, to correct our mistakes, to move forward with a, with a sense of justice and equality of opportunity for all. Not equality of outcome, but equality of opportunity. And that's what the Constitution guarantees all of us. And that's why they hate it so much. They don't want opportunity for all. They don't want equality. They want a different turn at the top. They want superiority, not equality. And they don't want equality of opportunity. They want equality of outcomes. They want everybody to have the same of everything. And the only way to do that is to embrace things that are expressly forbidden by the Constitution. And that is a huge government overseeing and thus controlling the will of the people. It is the will of the people that are supposed to control its government. And they don't like that. They want the opposite, which is why they're calling for an end to the Constitution. We'll go back to this article from Breitbart about the article in the New York Times. The liberals have attempted to reclaim the Constitution for half a century. This essay claims they have agonizingly little to show for it, while calling to radically alter the basic rules of the game. The authors, these... Harvard and Yale leftists. They criticized progressives for attempts to regain ownership of our founding charter, mistakenly attributing the problem to the Supreme Court's hijacking of the Constitution rather than the charter itself. Quote, Even when progressives concede that the Constitution is at the root of our situation, typically the call is for some new constitutionalism, they write. Calling the current Constitution inadequate and famously undemocratic, the authors wonder why progressives bother to justify our politics by the Constitution or by calls for some renovated constitutional tradition. It would be far better, they write, 
if liberal legislators would simply make the case for abortion and labor rights on their own merits without having to bother with the Constitution. I'm going to stop there and let that sink in. Forget about having a governing, ruling set of principles upon which this glorious country was founded. Kick that to the curb and just do what you want based on that and that moment. You see, what the Constitution does, and I'm not a constitutional scholar. I'm not Hugh Hewitt. I'm not Mark Levin. I'm not Peter Kirsten. I don't know. I can't cite chapter and verse of every single element of the Constitution. But I do know that what the Constitution does is it provides that bedrock, that framework, that infrastructure, if you will, by which all other laws can be created and can be evaluated. If you get rid of the principle of constitutionalism altogether, as these leftist professors would have you do, would have all of us do, you make cases for abortion or for labor rights, just to use the words that they chose there, based on the the moment, based on the trend of the moment, based on the feeling of the people at the moment, which, of course, can change in the blink of an eye. And then you have haphazard, full-on chaos as people just say, no, I'm changing this law, no, I'm changing that law, no, we're going to change it back to this. And on and on and on and on, and uh, you know, the, 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 the head games are played. As they run smack dab into one another, there needs to be a framework by which laws can be decided, legislated, debated, and then passed or, or rejected. There has to be a framework. If there isn't, you have that chaos that marks so many, you know, the fate of so many banana republics, if you will. Without our Constitution, we are no better than any of those countries that we have aided thanks to our Constitution. And and my bigger picture here is, and I'm going to read a little bit more of this, and then I'll stop. The bigger picture here is, this is a full-on admission, an acknowledgement. It, it, it's not something that is debated anymore on CNN versus Fox News. You know, you know, Republicans say Democrats hate America, and Democrats say Republicans hate democracy, and all this other stuff. This just puts the discussion to bed. They want to shred the Constitution because they don't like the country upon which it was built. So when American conservatives have rallies and they have American flags flying high with people carrying pocket copies of the Constitution in their shirt pockets and they have Gadsden flags flying, it's because they know what made the country what it is. That glorious document. And it's why when you see leftist rallies, you will not see very many American flags. You certainly will not see any references to the Constitution. They don't believe in it. You know, some people might take the attitude or the approach that I'm giving and that many of us give, many particularly people in my profession, you know, as a, as a bit of narcissism, as a bit of perceived superiority over others, when it's not fair to do that, it's a simple difference in ideology, and they might condemn that. But I'll tell you this, I don't walk away from that characterization. I think it is a superior mindset to back freedom, 
equality of opportunity, meritocracy, fundamental opportunities for all peoples, not with different rules for different sets of people based on how they look or how old they are, how young they are, what they like, what they don't like. The same rules for everybody. I believe that is superior to communism, to socialism, to Marxism, to globalism. I believe nationalism is superior to globalism. I think it is superior. And if they want to attack us for having that kind of an attitude... I'll wear it. I'll wear it proudly. To listen to progressive professors, Marxist professors, tell us that constitutionalism leaves democracy hostage to constraints that are harder to change than the rest of the legal order. To listen to them condemn us for that. To condemn the Constitution for actually providing the framework and, yes, the constraints that make it harder to change laws. And to let to let radicals uh, just completely undo that which made this country possible to be the greatest force for good in human civilization um, is, is, is quite an astounding thing. One way they write to get, rid, uh, to, uh, get this more democratic world is to pack the union with new states. Doing so would allow Americans to then use formal amendment process to alter the basic rules and break the false deadlock that the Constitution imposes through the Electoral College and the Senate on the country in which substantial majorities are foiled on issue after issue. They do not believe every American deserves an equal say. They do not believe that every American deserves an opportunity to decide who leads them. Congress should openly defy the Constitution, they say, to get to a more democratic order, with a basic structure of government being decided by the present electorate as opposed to one from the foggy past. A politics of the American future like this would create would make clear our ability to engage in the constant reinvention of our society. There it is. There's the line. The constant reinvention of our society under our own power without the illusion that the past stands in the way. The past is the foundation of this nation which allows you to have the freedom to write and say such incomprehensibly unimaginably indefensibly stupid things they don't understand they're attacking the one thing that gives them the opportunity to be what they are it's a, it's really an astounding thing democrats progressives leftists it's not a secret anymore they hate the united states of america they just do accept that and then act appropriately do not delude yourself into thinking they want unity and we have to we have to find a way to strive to come together they don't want to come together with you they hate you and they hate the country of which you are proud i'll be right back all right let's get one in here before the uh uh, before the uh, bottom of the hour news, we're going to go to T.J. waiting in Cleveland. Hey, T.J., go ahead. Yeah, you know, Bob, you asked the question why the left hates America, and the answer's simple. They're communists. You know, I got to Vietnam. I was 19 years old, and my platoon sergeant at the time was, like, in his 30s. So that's like Grandpa when he talks. You know, you listen to him. And I remember he told me the one time, son, we're fighting the wrong enemy here. And, you know, I told him, I says, look, I says, they're a bunch of commie rats. And he goes, yeah, they are. He says, but they're not a threat to us, son. 
He says, the real threat are them commie rats back in America. And, you know, I was puzzled. I said, what do you mean back in America? He said, if you're lucky enough to get out of here, he says, you go home. Don't let them fool you. He says, they give themselves fancy names like liberals and progressive. He says, son, but these are really commie rats. I come home and I read Saul Lewinsky's Rule for Radicals, the Communist Manifesto, and lo and behold, everything I see coming out of the left is in that manifesto. Uh, disarm the American people. Make them afraid to exercise their freedom of speech. Who started political correctness? Start to indoctrinate their children in schools. And, you know, then I seen a special a few weeks ago on Nazi Germany. And, you know, before the total takeover of the Nazis, you had all these factions, the Communist Party, the Nazi Party, the Workers' Party. Well, most of these college professors in Germany at the time were members of the Communist Party. And a lot of the Jewish ones bailed out and came to America, and they brought their communist uh, uh, ideas with them in our colleges. So this started a long time ago. And that's what the left is. They're communists. And, and they slowly get in there first with socialism, then Marxism, and then bingo, it's full-blown communism. Yeah. And, this and, is and a, lot of times right they, a lot of times they might not even know that, it, that they carry that label. They might not know that they are, quote, communists, that they believe in communism. They just believe in this thing, that thing, or the other thing, and they don't really put it all together. Oh, my gosh, that's basically communism, but they do, and they act on it that way. TJ, thanks for the call. Good stuff. We'll take more calls right after this on Always Ray Radio. you reason in the age of unreason always right radio with bob france and the answer the eleven thirty nine. we continue let's take some more phone calls here until the end of the broadcast university heights phil you're on am 1420 the answer thanks for waiting go ahead sir and good morning bob it's a pleasure to hear you hear from you again and talk to you good um to have you. i would i wanted to follow up on tj's comments I was a freshman in college in 1967, and everything was normal. Everyone had short hair, and everyone was fairly conservative. And then there was intense, intense, intense uh, confrontation about the war in Vietnam. And by 1968, when I was a sophomore, everybody had long hair, and everybody had changed their point of view, and everyone was uh, was uh, rolling with the leftist, whole leftist agenda. And it took me till. Until Reagan came along and I had children and a family realized what a total bunch of nonsense it all was. But everything changed and everything changed in college. It was uh, the professors at that time had a mantra that they were teaching you how to think for yourself. They were giving you the information, the, the criteria, the, all the, uh, the statistics and formulas and so on and so forth. But you had to think for yourself and that's what they awarded you for. Not anymore. Now you have to follow the mantra. You have to do what they say. And things changed in the administrations of the universities. Everything changed then. I got one other thing to add about his comment. Now listen to what you have to say to me. Mm-hmm. And that is that he said something about the uh, Nazi Germany and the, the Jews that came out of there. Let me tell you something. I'm an, I'm an Orthodox Jew. And I can tell you that, that communism antithetical, antithetical to anything written in the Old Testament, the Torah, it's all about self-determination. It's all about you being responsible for your actions. It's all about being independent. 
even the greatest form of charity that you can give is not money, but giving somebody a job. So I just want to make sure that he understands anyone who is Jewish and is communist is not following Judaism, and it's a separate issue entirely. And this goes back to Woodrow Wilson in our country, who was a, was a progressive, which is a, was another term for socialist, who was the worst president we ever had, and let us down to the beginning of these paths. So I'm just leaving that out for you, and Okay. Hear what you have to say. Well, I appreciate it, Phil. Thank you so much for the phone call. <clears throat> uh, there's a lot there, obviously, um, and I certainly, I'm, you know, I, I concur and understand exactly what you mean when you talk about uh, Judaism and and uh, and communism being completely at odds with one another. Uh, you know, antithetical to one another. I don't disagree with that at all. The part that I find really interesting uh, is about the shift in the. Uh, attitudes, as you pointed out, during that period uh, on the college campuses, from the short-haired and then to the long-haired and anti-war and so on and so forth, and how quickly people's minds can be changed when the people in charge uh, are are polluting their minds and not get, and then telling them, by the way, that you have to think for yourself, while literally saying, if you don't think the way we want you to think, then we are going to belittle you, marginalize you, ostracize you, and so on and so forth. That hasn't changed from the 60s to today. It, it's it, those who would tell you to think for yourself. You know, think free, man. Going back to the hippie movement, going back to the anti-Vietnam War. You know, you gotta, you gotta think free, man. You gotta, you know, you know, free yourself and and, and let yourself go from all of society's conventions and so on and so forth. But yet, if you say, "Yeah, I am thinking for myself," and here's what I think, and this is what I believe, and this is who I support, there, then you are cast out. You are cast out from their, you know, from their inner circle. Um, it is, it is what. The left believes in in this country, and yes, it is. So much of its roots are in, indeed in communism, uh, and that's why it's an astounding thing to think that that we are pushing ever further to the left. So much so that we are not going to be able to come back, uh, and that communism is waiting over there, just waiting to suck everyone in. And it's happening now, the way it did, you know, for so many during that period of the sixties. Thank you, Phil, for the call. Let me get one more in real quick. We'll go to um, uh, Bill in Wellington. Hi, Bill. Go ahead, sir. Hi, uh, uh, you usually hit a home run, but I'll tell you, uh, you struck out in your conversation before these calls start coming through. Which part? When you started talking about, when you started talking about uh, these people and going through this whole mess of why this professor is doing this and why this professor is doing that. Damn it, they're all communists, period. Okay, 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 okay. I, 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 thanks for the call. I'm out of time. I can accept that criticism. You want to simplify it and say they're just all communists. I was trying to go deeper, but I got you, brother. We'll see you tomorrow. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.